Hello, hello, hello. My name is Andrew, and I would like to welcome you to this week's episode of The Bible Less Traveled. This is a podcast where we are on a journey as fellow travelers into the text of the Bible. A journey that's a little different than the norm. We'll be doing pretty normal things, like reading texts from the Bible, analyzing them, interpreting them, and trying to apply them to today, but we will be doing so from a decidedly unfundamentalist perspective. This week, we continue our arc of episodes tackling different myths about the Bible. Today's myth is one that I certainly grew up with in church, as I'm sure many of you did as well. You can't question the Bible. This is that. The Bible said it. That settles it. Kind of an attitude, right? There's so much here that's building on what we've already talked about, so I want to give a quick review of our conclusions so far. Um, first off, th there are many ways to interpret passages in Scripture. The Bible is very complex and is very human through and through. Uh, and the Bibles that we read in English, since they are translations, are superimposed with interpretive decisions by their translators. All of those reasons are good answers to why we probably don't have to swallow our questions and just take the Bible at face value, but we are going to push a little bit deeper today into the nature um, of questions, of doubt, of faith, and of responsible engagement with Scripture. So let's start with the assumptions that are holding up this myth. The first assumption is that the Bible is the ultimate trump card in an argument. I include this because of the late 20th century uh, push in evangelical Christian circles towards apologetics or defending the faith. This movement's cornerstone is this myth, and many Christians today still try to use the Bible as a form of support for argumentation um, in its own defense, assuming again that it is the ultimate source of knowledge and truth, relying on, again, some of our earlier uh, myths to support that as well. This leads us smoothly into a connected assumption, though, that the Bible is primarily concerned with providing answers. Put another way, we could say that the assumption is that the Bible is primarily an answer book, a handbook for life, we've maybe heard said before. We see this in pop Christian culture all the time. Have a question about dating? Find your answer in the Bible. Have a question about finances? Look for the biblical answer. Have a question about politics? Look to the Bible for support for your position, etc. Also related to the first assumption, uh, to these assumptions, the following one, the Bible needs to be protected from questions. We need to protect the Bible from doubters, from people who can't just accept it at face value, who don't have the faith to do so. The core assumption here is that leaving the Bible with is that leaving the Bible with questions instead of answers is a bad thing. If the Bible is the word of God, the logic goes, then we have no right to question it, and it shouldn't leave us confused. <laughs> uh, and if we do question it, our final assumption postulates, we are not a person of faith, we are a doubter, or at the very least, our faith isn't very strong. Okay, 
let's engage with these a little bit more, shall we? The problem with the first assumption of the Bible being the ultimate trump card in an argument is that it ignores several realities that we've discussed in previous episodes, primarily assumptions around interpretation. The assumption, the assumption under the assumption here is that the individual's or that their community's interpretation is the correct one, the only one. So instead of having a strong view of the authority of scripture as they claim they have, and as they believe they do, they actually have a high view of the authority of their own interpretation of the text, or of their pastor's interpretation of the text. This is problematic for several reasons. First, it lacks any sense of humility and wiggle room to admit that there's a possibility that they're wrong because their interpretation is equated with God's own word. See previous episodes points above, above for many reasons why this is fallacious. It continues, uh, secondly, it, it continues the trend that we have spoken of, um, of flattening the text and ignoring its complexity. And then third, it assumes uh that their interpretation is universal to the point where people either agree with it or they are simply wrong, tearing down uh, and numbing the ability for creative thinking, encouraging defensiveness, and engenderizing a polarized approach to disagreements. Black and white views of everything tend to do that. As for seeing the Bible as primarily an answer book, we see how this is reductionistic, ignoring the many forms and types of literature contained within scripture, rendering the Bible as a guidebook for life, a simple tool to use to support our own beliefs and assumptions, an interesting way to utilize a professed holy book. And finally, it encourages avoiding uh, the, the difficult parts of scripture and explaining away anything that contradicts the answers that have already been extracted from the text. Which leads us into dismantling our third assumption, that the Bible needs to be protected from questions. All this assumption reveals as true is that complexity is too hard, gray is forbidden, and that the faith of these ardent defenders is actually pretty weak. It's a collection of is this collection of texts that has resonated and endured for centuries so pitiful that it can't stand up to our questions? And is the God professed to be behind it so weak as to cower from conversation? Or on the flip side, are they so lacking in humor and grace that they demand the crushing of any who so utter a word of doubt or confusion? I could probably rant on for a while about that one, but let's move on to the main star of the show today, that questioners of the text, doubters, are weak in faith. I want to spend more time with this because I believe that the opposite is true. Asking questions of the text is precisely what leads to the deepening of faith. Now, I'm not talking about brute cynicism here. Not that there's anything inherently wrong about coming to the text cynically, other than it might distract you from all uh, that is going on in your conversation with it. I'm talking about those who are genuinely willing to say that they don't understand something, and to attempt to find an answer whether they're able to or not, who are willing to ask why, and push for better answers than swallowing the token ones that they've been given. It are these questioners 
who are asking and knocking. And so it is they who will receive what the text has to offer, and it is for them that the door will be opened, to use a biblicism. Um, ultimately, this is a conversation about interpretation and the importance of having questions. All of us, whether we were raised in religious environments that demanded conformity in belief, uh, in ones that encouraged critical thought, or in non-religious environments, becoming comfortable with asking questions of the text can be a journey. We tend to be raised on either sides of an extreme. One side of the extreme is very comfortable with questions, but not so much with questions in general, just with questioning. And then the other side isn't comfortable with questions at all, neither the questions that they have nor the questions that might be posed to them through their engagement with the text. I want to give a picture of how asking questions of the text, though, can lead to deeper understanding and deeper engagement with Scripture. For this, I'm going to be using a very odd story about Jesus from Matthew chapter 15. Uh, before diving in, I would like to remind us all that chapters and verses and section headings are a much later addition to the text and are not original to it, and I would argue that they even encourage us to read texts out of context, but that being said, they're very handy for finding our way around. The passage I'm going to read today is a very difficult passage with a gajillion attempts at interpretation around it, and I won't claim that my own is the only correct one because we've already established that as folly. As I have said before, I want to show how interviewing a text can lead to deeper understanding. So for those who want to follow along, I'm going to be reading Matthew uh, from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 15, starting with verse 21 and going through verse 28. And the translation I'm going to be reading from is the Common English Bible, but feel free to read from whatever translation you have around. Okay, here we go. From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, Show mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, Send her away. She keeps shouting out after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, It is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then her daughter was healed. On our first pass here, let's just pull out our gut reactions to the text. I don't know about you, but this text is deeply unsettling to me. Here, Jesus is refusing to heal somebody, seems to be refusing to do so because they belong to a particular people group, and even though he does heal the woman's daughter in the end, it's only after the woman has been demeaned to a great extent. How's that for a difficult text? <laughs> Are your reactions similar to mine? 
Did your gut lead you differently? Our gut reactions to a text are a really great starting point. They may not be our end point, though. We can only determine that after engaging a little bit more. So this is what that we're going to do. We're going to read the passage again. This time, write down or think about any questions that you have that, about the text, no matter how simple they seem or whether they are related to your gut reaction or not. Just any question you can, you can think of that comes to mind. Just come up with as many questions as you can about any and every aspect of the passage. Got it? Here we go. From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, Show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, Send her away. She keeps shouting out after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then her daughter was healed. So what are some of the questions that you came up with around the text? These are some of mine. Where are Tyre and Sidon? What is the significance that the woman is a Canaanite? What is demon possession? Why are we not shown the daughter in this passage? Is the daughter present? for this conversation, or is she elsewhere? Why does Jesus ignore the woman's pleas for help? Why do the disciples want her to be sent away? Why does Jesus only respond to her after the disciples urge him to? What does Jesus mean by saying he was sent? What does Jesus mean by saying he was only sent for Israel? What does Jesus mean by comparing Israel to a flock of sheep? Holy crap, did Jesus just call this woman a dog? Why does Jesus say she has great faith? Why does Jesus recognize her faith only after her witty response? Why wasn't the woman's persistence enough to demonstrate her faith? Why wasn't the woman's calling of Jesus the son of David, a title for the Jewish Messiah, not enough to demonstrate her faith? Why does Jesus heal the woman's daughter after all of that? All right. We're going to read the passage one more time. This time, 
write down weird or odd details that you notice in the passage that stand out to you. What is the what are the one or two that are bugging you the most? From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, Show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, Send her away. She keeps shouting after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then, her daughter was healed. What stood out to you this time? For me, the two things that stand out the most are Jesus' rude treatment of this woman, as well as the fact that something seems to change his mind about helping her. So let's zoom in on those things for a second and just pull on those threads. Now, Jesus' rude treatment of the woman seems to be tied to the fact that she is a Canaanite. This is kind of doubly emphasized, both in the location where Jesus is said to be, a largely non-Jewish area, and in the fact of labeling her a Canaanite as opposed to a Gentile, non-Jew, or a Phoenician, um, the nationality of the people that live in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, both were cities in the ancient nation of Phoenicia, uh, where the infamous Old Testament character Jezebel was from, and were uh, then a part of, at Jesus' time, a part of the larger Roman province of Syria. But he's, he's designated her as both a non-Jew and a local. Uh, people the Israelites and Judeans had long avoided intermixing with in accordance with Old Testament law. Dog was also a common slur for Gentiles used by Judeans in this time period. The thing that really gets me here, though, is that Jesus is not... Jesus is not very veiled racism set aside. <laughs> Jesus is... Jesus changes his mind about helping the woman. Something happened that changed his mind. Jesus changed his mind. Jesus went from, I was just sent here to help my people, and I can't really spare any of that help for the likes of you, to, wow, you've got great faith. What the heck? Is this an instance of Jesus learning? growing, of Jesus' assumptions about his mission being challenged and evolving. <laughs> I, 
I don't really have a satisfactory answer on this for you, and honestly, I think that's okay. The Bible isn't an answer book. It wasn't written to answer every question that we might ask it. We just engaged with the text in a way that led to a richer sense of involvement with it, I hope. Uh, that got us a new angle on who Jesus was and is, and maybe landed us with a whole lot more questions that we want to pursue the answers for later. My only hope and point in all of this is that you can begin to see how asking questions of the text is something that leads us deeper into it, that gets us closer to its heart, that leads us, most importantly, into a conversation with it. You see, the two-way street There's a two-way street of interpretation that's going on. This conversation that we enter into with Scripture is of vital importance because when we engage in it, we are not only interpreting the text, but are opening ourselves up to be questioned by the text. Hopefully, you already felt that a bit through our exercise above. Here are some questions that I leave this text wrestling with. Do I fully understand who Jesus is? Do I ever ask God to just shut someone up for me? Are there instances where I have ignored someone's calls for help? Are there instances where I have argued that I just don't have enough to help someone, or that it isn't my job to help them? Is there a person or a group of people that God is calling me to change my mind about? calling me to include in my definition of who is valuable and worthy of my time and energy. How can I grow to see the value in all of the people around me? What's a good next step? Are crumbs enough to offer those in need of help? I want to end by reading, so as you will come to know, one of my favorite uh, writers uh, goes by the name of Frederick Buechner. Um, and Buechner has this delightful reading uh, entry on questions, originally published in his book Wishful Thinking. Um, the ABCs of faith. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is his entry called Questions. On her deathbed, Gertrude Stein is said to have asked, what is the answer? Then after a long silence, what is the question? Don't start looking in the Bible for the answers it gives. Start by listening for the questions it asks. We are much involved, all of us, with questions about things that matter a good deal today, 
but will be forgotten by this time tomorrow. The immediate wheres and whens and hows that face us daily, at home and at work. But at the same time, we tend to lose track of the questions about things that matter always. Life and death questions about meaning, purpose, and value. To lose track of such deep questions as these is to risk losing track of who we really are in our own depths and where we are really going. There is perhaps no stronger reason for reading the Bible than that somewhere among all those India paper pages, there awaits each reader, whoever he or she is, the one question which the... Uh, which though for years they may have been pretending not to hear it, is the central question of their own life. Here are a few of them. What is a man profited if he, gain, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Am I my brother's keeper? If God is for us, who can be against us? What is truth? How can a man be born when he is old? What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Where shall I go from your spirit? Who is my neighbor? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? When you hear the question that is your question, then you have already begun to hear much. Whether you can accept the Bible's answer or not, you have reached the point where at least you can begin to hear it too. Well, that is our episode of The Bible Less Traveled, fellow travelers. If you're enjoying the show, go ahead and follow me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thebiblelesstraveled and leave the show a, re a review and a rating. Uh, also, for those of you that are interested in supporting the work that I'm doing, you can check out my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thebiblelesstraveled. Thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk with you all next time. Grace and peace be with you, fellow travelers. Until then.